This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. Right before the 2008 financial crisis, there were certain trends that you could see, trends that in retrospect meant something bad was coming. One of those was a housing boom in the exurbs, the places far away from city centers beyond the suburbs. Home prices there were rising and rising. So were the number of permits to build new houses. But while the exurbs were still booming, cracks in the housing market were starting to show. Buyers were financially stretched and home sales began slowing down in cities. That same trend is happening again, right now. Today on the show, what does it mean that the exurbs are coming back? Is it once again an indicator of bad things to come? Welcome to The Journal, our new show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Wednesday, July 10th. Laura Cusisto has been covering real estate for The Wall Street Journal for eight years. I've seen this in Las Vegas, in Dallas, uh, in Houston. You know, most major metropolitan areas in the U.S., you're seeing exurbs start to come back. People can't afford a home in a city or a close-in suburb anymore. And there's just enormous demand for anything you can build that's reasonably affordable to people. So we've had seven years where prices have grown much, much, much faster than incomes. Um, And so that tells us that we're getting to that point where we should start to worry that we might be getting close to another downturn. To get a sense of how close that downturn might be, Laura went to an exurb 30 miles south of Phoenix called Maricopa. You drive and drive and drive through the suburbs of Phoenix, and then the suburbs end and there's desert, and you drive through more desert, and it feels like you've been on the freeway just forever. And for miles, all you really see is cacti and some mountains, and it's beautiful, but it's really kind of isolated and almost sort of desolate feeling. And then you get to Maricopa, and everything looks the same. It's these sort of sand-colored houses with terracotta roofs, and the trees are all scrawny and tiny and brand new, uh, and it has just this total feeling of just complete newness of this place that just kind of comes out of nowhere. The place feels new because it sort of is. In the 1990s, less than 2,000 people lived in Maricopa. Maricopa was basically a little cowboy town with like a couple of streets. And then... That little cowboy town transformed. They were one of the fastest growing places in the entire United States. It was incredible. They were, at one point, issuing permits to build new homes out of a trailer surrounded by goats, like, munching the desert grass. There are stories about people camping out, like, sleeping the night before to be able to, like, buy a home. Like, it was that explosive. Even though it happened 10 years ago, I feel like I could listen all day long to people telling me these stories about, like, the lawyer that had, like, a modem set up on top of her car so she could close deals without having to go back to her office. It was just a totally—it was like a crazy time. And if you thought maybe you could buy a house and it would still go up in value, people just jumped on it. 
everyone knew that it probably was going to stop at some point, but no one knew when. But it did stop a decade ago when the housing market crashed. And when that happened, Maricopa became the poster child for the housing bust. It was one of the places that was worst hit by the housing bust. It was on the front page of every newspaper in the country. It was on every TV station. Drive just about any street in Maricopa and you'll see them. Real estate signs say short sale and bank owned. Deserted in the desert, the inside story of how one town melted down. At one point, four out of five homes in Maricopa were worth less than the mortgages. If you're someone who bought a home in Maricopa for 200000 and now it's worth 80000 like, you just, you could keep paying that mortgage every month and your home could never be worth what you originally paid for it. So there were a lot of people who walked away. You're just done paying the bank. Yeah. And yeah. you sort of, you take a hit to your credit and you go rent for a while. And that but was a big phenomenon in the recession. All over the place. The financial crisis of 2008 left Maricopa decimated. The city had almost 100 home foreclosures a month. Maricopa's explosive growth was over. But there were people who stayed in Maricopa, people who hung on to their practically worthless homes, who lived among the empty cul-de-sacs and tried to make the best of it. Neighbors had to get together and cut the lawns and the hedges and pick up the garbage on all these empty homes. One of my favorite people I talked to was this guy who's now the mayor of Maricopa. He's a young guy. And it was sort of people like him who decided that they weren't going to walk away. He said he sort of felt a sense of loyalty. It was the first place that he bought a home and he wanted to make it better. So, yeah, he kind of ran for mayor during the the depths of the housing crisis. And he told me this story. I couldn't even find a campaign manager because... This one woman he talked to was like, why would I help you run for mayor of this place that everyone just wants to leave? But he and others kind of just believed that if they could keep it kind of clean and nice, that people would come back. And incredibly enough, the even the residents actually voted to tax themselves to build a community center during the depths of the downturn with just this hope that, like, if they didn't seem like a community that was dying, that people would eventually come back. You kind of had two choices. Like, you either could kind of accept that it was never going to come back or you kind of said, how can we make this a place that people actually want to be? They're not just here because it's cheap. Um, and so what if we build this amazing community center? Um, what if we invest in parks? What if we invest in schools? And what if we make this like a place that's actually good enough that you want to be there? And now, more than a decade later, Maricopa's population is growing. Home values are recovering, though they're still below their 2006 peak. And there's one couple Laura talked to, Josh and Danielle, who are like so many of the homebuyers moving to Maricopa. So Josh and Danielle were your very typical urban millennials. Uh, They were living in Portland. They were renting an apartment. They didn't have enough space. They wanted a backyard. um, And it seemed like a kind of distant and impossible dream. To get a real house in Portland these days, you're probably looking at 400000 or so. And uh, they were visiting Danielle's father, who lives in suburban Phoenix. And it was February, and the sun was out, and there was a pool, and there was a golf course, and there were palm trees, and they were just like, this, this is it. The sun, the palm trees, all of that seemed amazing to Josh and Danielle. But the thing that really drew them to the area was the same thing that brought people here in the early 2000s, the price of a home. 
they could afford it. And they were like, oh, my God, we can get a six-bedroom house uh, for the cost of our two-bedroom house in Portland. Uh, And that just seemed like the best deal in the world. They were like, we can have a pool and and this huge house. And be close to her dad. And be close to her dad. And, uh, And so they did it. They basically got married, went on a honeymoon, and immediately moved to Maricopa. This time around, what's driving the growth in Maricopa isn't speculative. It isn't house flipping. This time, people are moving to Maricopa because people want to live in Maricopa. Because I think there is something more organic driving things this time. There is kind of a young generation of people who want to buy homes and can only afford these kind of lower price starter homes. Like that's a real thing that we didn't really have last time that's not just being driven by a bunch of mortgages being given to people who can't afford them. Homebuilders have returned to Maricopa as well. Last year, the city issued permits for developers to build nearly 1,000 new homes. In 2010, the depths of the housing crisis, the town issued around 100. Construction in the exurbs is happening around the country. The National Association of Home Builders says that new construction for single-family homes is rising only in the exurbs. Everywhere else, it's dropping. There are signs that new home construction is starting to slow down in the exurbs, just like the rest of the housing market. And that itself could be an indicator that the overall housing market is ready to take a turn. The exurbs today, they're in some ways even riskier than the exurbs of 10 years ago. They are, in many cases, even further from the city center. Um, And I think there are people who really ask the question, like, what is the absolute limit? Is an hour or 90 minutes? Or what is that limit of where people will just say, I'm not going to drive this far every single day anymore? And we just don't really know what that limit is. There are other slight echoes of the housing bus, too. I feel like I, I should say that You know, when I was out in these communities, a lot of people are getting mortgages with only 3% down payments or no down payments at all. And, you know, okay, but not amazing credit scores. So that's different than when you just had to be alive and you could get a mortgage. (laughs) Like, you now have to, like, provide some paperwork and, you know, have some savings or a job. But these are people who are riskier. So I still think these are going to be the areas that are a little bit more vulnerable. Overall, Laura says the recovery of the exurbs is probably not the sign of a new global recession. But that doesn't mean that all is well in the exurbs. The test of that will be what happens when home prices closer to cities start to fall and whether people stick around. After the break... What's the one thing missing from the ticker tape parade for the U.S. women's soccer team? Ticker tape. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Knutson. Down by Wall Street today, there was a ticker tape parade to celebrate the U.S. women's soccer team, which just won the World Cup. The thing about ticker tape parades these days, though, is there's no ticker tape. Ticker tape is old. It's these strips that were used for stock tickers that was left over when they would get the stocks. Stock prices were literally printed on this paper. That's Katie Honan, who covers City Hall for The Wall Street Journal. The very first ticker tape parade was an impromptu celebration of the Statue of Liberty in 1886. And it just happened to be down by Wall Street, where ticker tape was used. You had large rooms where the stock prices were coming out on these big reams of paper, and then the ticker tape at the end was just lying around. So it's like inherent to the fact that it began near Wall Street? Yeah, I mean, that's where the financial institutions were. And they had the tickers. And they had the tickers, they had the ticker ticker tape. tape. Just like, I don't know, I mean, maybe if a parade started somewhere else, like if it was in a fashion district, they would have thrown buttons out the window or something. Yeah, they would call it like a button day parade or something. Yeah, they threw what they had, especially if it was going to go in the garbage anyway. Garbage or not, over time, ticker tape parades move from impromptu celebrations to tradition. There have been more than 200 in U.S. history. But here's the problem. Obviously, ticker tape doesn't really exist anymore because, hello, computers. The name, though, has stuck. And so has the tradition of tossing paper onto people down on the streets. So parade organizers have to find an alternative— And Katie has been talking to the people who are supplying that alternative. I did not know that there was an actual company that the city utilizes to get this paper. This company um, in Red Hook, it's called Kansas Paper Recycling. Uh Basically, they provide packaging materials when you move. When you go to restaurants, you have these big sheets of paper on a table. Uh And they the shredded paper for, like, pet store dog beds. Uh But they were printing up special paper for the parade. So... Wait, so they they don't they're not like they don't make just like big rolls of computer paper, they make like specialty paper. It's actually newsprint. It's not special for the parade, but the it's unprinted newsprint. So that width of a newsprint where it almost feels a little uh-huh. not chalky, but it doesn't feel as smooth as computer paper, that's what it's printed off of. We still call it a ticker tape parade, but um it's shredded paper, which doesn't sound as good as ticker tape parade. Ticker tape parade doesn't just sound cooler, it looks cooler too. If you look at the old pictures, it looks like big, papery spiderwebs hanging from the trees. The new stuff just isn't like that. And some people are not happy about this change. The issue with the new paper is these ticker tape purists who are so tied to the feel and the weight of the ticker tape and how it looked when it fell. 
it was described to my colleague like the ticker tape falls, like the tail of a kite. So I guess it, the weight of it picks up the wind. You can imagine it just floating down instead of just plopping down on a tree and getting stuck or a telephone wire. But you can still get it, right? You Yeah, wrote- like all old things that only a few people hang on to, it's very, very expensive to recreate. So I think it would put the estimated costs for a ticker tape parade using actual ticker tape, like in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more. But at the parade this morning, nobody seemed to mind. I'm just, I'm just so happy to be here. For me, so it's like history. I want to be a part of history. It's all about the spirit and, and celebrating the amazing performance of the U.S. women's national team. Toilet paper can be raining down on you now. So, oh, you see, I said, no. look at that. Uncue, uncue. It was an amazing experience because I got to see all my favorite soccer players. Katie's story on the parade is up right now on WSJ.com or wherever you find your chalky newsprint version. She wrote it with Charles Passy. That's all for today. It's Wednesday, July 10th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Friday.